You're listening to the Alternative Investment Podcast. We give you the insights and strategies you need to grow your wealth with alternative investments. Now, here's your host, Andy Hagens. Welcome to the show. I'm Andy Hagens, and today we're going to dive into all sorts of alternative asset classes. Today, I'm speaking with Syra Rahman, who is VP of New Investor Initiatives at Fundrise. And Syra, I have to say, Fundrise is a huge name in this space, especially in terms of uh, you know democratizing alternatives. So I'm really excited to have you on the show. Welcome. Thank you so much. I'm so excited to be chatting with you today. And I have to think that most folks, most listeners, viewers in our audience are already familiar with Fundrise. I mean, I do think in the, I, I hate to say, con, you're almost a consumer brand, which is so, that's like a, a unicorn, actually. Now that I think about it, I'm like, I'm processing this in real time. The alternative space, you know, we're the alternative investment podcast. There's so much in here. It's not exactly B2B, but it's kind of uh, more sophisticated, very niche. There's just a couple brands in this space that are truly B2C. I, I have to think that Fundrise is one of those. Do you agree? I Yeah, I mean, absolutely. I think I, I'm probably bragging a little bit here, but I like to think we were the first one. So we came out of the Jobs Act in 2012, um, and we were really that first real estate investment platform and have since expanded into the entire alternative universe and are gradually expanding into more and more product lines. But yeah, that, that dream of democratizing alternative assets for retail investors is definitely our North Star. It's, it's funny, Syrah, I have to say the democratizing access to alternatives, I think like a thousand companies have that as their tagline or in their mission statement or something. But but a few companies I feel like actually have made huge headway in that, you know, in, in different ways, right? Like in like iCapital or Case, you know, they those kind of plumbing of these networks where products are sold through advisors, and then platforms like Fundrise actually bringing them, you know, truly mass market. Now I'm familiar with Fundrise, but it's it's probably been a while since I've been on your website. I I saw that you now have 1.8 million active users, according to what I read, and 387,000 investors on the platform. Are those numbers accurate? They absolutely are. And I mean, we're growing every day and we started with real estate. We've since expanded we also have venture capital that we launched last year, which has a bunch of different interesting facets underneath it. Um, and then we are in the midst of launching a, a few more. Okay. And let's take us back. I get, you know, you, you said Fundrise was the first not to brag and I I'm not fact checking, but that sounds plausible to me because there's a reason <laughs> you guys have such a big, day. you mean in terms of a, like a crowdfunding platform that's offering alternatives to non-accredited or what, what were you the first at, I guess, is what I'm asking. Yeah, we so we originally started as crowdfunding for real estate investments. So our first few transactions were individual buildings that you could invest directly into um, that our co-founders 
raised among people that they knew were as passionate as they were about real estate. And then we've slowly shifted over time. Um, we eventually launched eReads um, in the like early to mid 2010s era. And then um, in the last three to four years, we've launched two 40 Act funds, so our flagship fund, which is um, a standard 40 Act fund, and then most recently our venture fund, um, which is also another 40 Act fund that we offer. Got it. So you now have a, a, a mix of products that are crowdfunded or not crowdfunded and sort of something for everybody. Is that accurate? Or I, or I guess, could you walk us through, you know, who are, who are the typical net you know, in 2023, investors who are signing up at Fundrise every day, what does that mix of investors look like? Yeah, um, that's actually one of the more fun parts of my job right now is doing the research on our underlying user base. And what we've come to find is that the typical investor on our platform is a high net worth investor um, who has additional funds and wants to have a real estate portfolio, but doesn't desire or realistically any of the alts that we offer. So also in the innovation side, um, on the innovation fund, I should say, but between those two, they want to have alternative assets in their portfolio. They don't necessarily want to own a piece of real estate. They don't necessarily want to go dive in and offer, you know, 50, 100,000, $150,000 checks to be an LP to a, a name, or maybe they don't even have access to those things because they don't know who they would go to. So then they turn to us and they give us those funds and they entrust us to invest on their behalf. So we have a series of non-traded REITs that you can invest in if you like real estate. We also have our innovation fund if you wanted to invest in venture capital. Got it. So, so it's not necessarily that your users, that your investors are non-accredited. They just they may be accredited investors, but they're either looking for you know that direct platform or maybe smaller ticket size investments you know or or something like that is is that accurate that's exactly it so you can invest for as little as $10 um but you know our average investment size is usually quite a bit more than that got it okay and are you you're still doing the crowdfunding thing though right so if 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 someone is non accredited they can still sign up on fundrise and they can still plunk down their $10 Absolutely. We welcome everyone. Got it. Yeah, that's that, that honestly, that's what I mean when I say every company claims that they're democratizing access to alts. It's actually pretty rare that, you know, a company has that offering for everyone. So, well, let's start with real estate. Uh, I have to say it's a favorite asset class on this program. Obviously, you know, at Fundrise, it was your your very first asset class. Um, take us through that evolution. You know, you said you started with these individual properties, individual assets and, and, and crowdfunding those, um, and then into non-traded REITs. Are you still, uh, doing individual assets or is it kind of grown beyond that to, to these funds? What's available yeah. now in 2023? So we have a bunch of different strategies that you can invest in. So we take the approach, in my opinion, it's very much like a mutual fund, but obviously not in the equities or publicly traded world. So you can select a strategy. Um, we also have Fundrise Pro, which is where you can individually select one of our 
REITs, which is our subscription model. But between the two of those, you can choose essentially a strategy that you really believe in, whether you are really into East Coast developments or whether you really want to just have um, a little bit of your money across all of our different REITs. Um, we have an income fund as well as um, like our typical flagship, which is a little bit more on the growth strategy side. Um, and then obviously, if you wanted to get into um, venture, which I guess is separate from the real estate piece, we have a separate strategy for that. But um, we don't currently have individual property investment. We found that most of our investors tend to prefer that we allocate on their behalf um, in a very similar strategic manner to how we would want to allocate our own portfolio. Got it. Okay. So most you're saying most investors coming in, they're looking for that blend anyway. They're They're looking for diversification. So Yes. You have to give the people what they want, right? That's that's rule number one when raising capital. Um, has, you know, is the real estate market, you know, from my standpoint, it's not frozen. There are still deals happening. There are still investors, you know, writing checks, but it, it, it's, it's in this sort of holding pattern, it feels to me, you know, where everything is just slowed down, not quite frozen, but slow, a little bit more glacial maybe. Is that what you're seeing on your platform? Is interest slowed down or have deals slowed down? I mean, it's <laughs> it's interesting that you ask that. I think from a real estate deals perspective, it's certainly slowed down. Um, we are picky to begin with, with the deals that we want to bring to our platform because we do compete with all the other major institutions in terms of searching for the right deals for our REITs. I think the complication within that is that people have less disposable income, they have less investable income, particularly in the retail realm. So um, has it slowed down a little bit? I like the nice thing is that from a strategy perspective, a lot of people consider uh, particularly alts to be uncorrelated to the market. So if anything, I've seen a lot more of my friends actually asking me what I do now versus before where alts probably were kind of this this side mm -hmm. the show to to public equities. So that's been probably the biggest shift that I've personally noticed over the last six months or so. Yeah, I've seen a lot of research talking about Gen Y, Gen Z, they don't trust the stock market. I mean, I know that's kind of a, a big, bold statement. It doesn't cover every single person, but compared to like the baby boomer generation, they're way more open to all kinds of alternative investments, including crypto, which doesn't always end well. <laughs> uh, nothing against crypto. I own some Bitcoin, you know, but but uh, all types of alternative, like, like uh, Gen Z might view crypto as just as a legitimate type of investment as the stock market, right? Which that's a, that's really a shift in in alternatives favor right because it's no longer as you said it's no longer this little thing over here do, do you interact with any users who are you know using fundrise as like their main investment vehicle you know not as a 20 percent thing but they're like you know what i want to start investing i don't like the stock market though i heard about this fundrise i'm going to get on fundrise and actually start with with this you know, probably the most interesting thing that I noticed, particularly after you see a lot of the articles that came out between endowments and Blackstone doing research on the 60-40 portfolio and how that's really 
not something in modern times that a lot of people are actually following anymore. Um, and there was this huge shift of, especially even within our user base, I would say, where it's like, it's no longer this five to 10% allocation, right? You look at the high net worth individuals, the ultra high net worth individuals, the endowments um, and the allocators that are going anywhere from 20 to 50% into alts. And suddenly you start seeing large jumps, whether it's with fundraisers or even with some of my friends, people that I've been talking to outside of work who are much more interested in heavily investing in alternatives because that's historically, at least for the last decade, or so where the vast majority of the alpha is being found, um, particularly with, with private markets, such as real estate, such as venture. So they're just, they're just way more open to it. And, you know, I, I kind of agree with you on the hook, you know, I'm a, I'm a marketing guy, I'm into finance, but I'm into marketing. You know, this show is kind of the intersection of those things. And to, to me, that's, that's one of the biggest hooks. And I think even if you listen to, to our audio trailer, on like uh, iTunes, the first line, I forget the exact quote, but I say something like, how do billionaires really invest their money? You know, but, but to your point, this is something that the Harvard endowment, the Yale endowment, institutional investors, they've been investing in alternatives for years and it hasn't been this 10% allocation, right? It's been a substantial, uh, almost a centerpiece in many cases of, of their strategy. Exactly. And that's, that's something that I have really started preaching. I don't, I think from a financial literacy standpoint, accessibility is the key and it's not just the accessibility of like, okay, I can invest in fundraise. It's also how are you presenting the information to the people that want to understand it? And is it in a digestible format? And are you doing it in such a way that they feel comfortable investing in that alternative investment, which I really think is a differentiator on our platform. So, so what does that mean exactly? Just that, like the the user experience that when I when I get on Fundrise, I don't need. You know, I would like to think if if you've been listening to this podcast since the beginning, we're on like episode 150 now. You're going to be very well versed in all kinds of alternatives, all these asset classes, all these terms. But a lot of people aren't right. A lot of even a lot of accredited investors. My business partner Jimmy talks about this all the time. He's like, you know, my next door neighbor is an accredited investor. He does not know that he's an accredited investor, but he's an accredited investor. So a lot of these terms that we use, like accredited investor, GP, LP, even like private credit, just like, you know, users don't understand them. So is that a big, is that a big part of your secret sauce? Just, just making the user experience very, uh, I, I don't want to say dummy proof. That's the wrong word, but, but making educational. it. Educational. We're making it very educational. <laughs> I, I mean, I it's like I consider myself to be part of this group. I mean, I spent a very long time selling complex financial instruments, but I, in terms of understanding even the nuance behind accredited investor, the under like understanding exactly how a real estate deal works, what is a cap rate, how how do large entities go out and pick out their properties, how what do they look like, how do they price them. Um, what does angel investing actually mean? Am I just writing checks into random companies? Who are these companies? How do they get vetted? How do you price them? How do you understand the private markets versus the public markets? What are the differences between those two? I, you know, I, I've been fortunate to experience a lot of those things now that I joined Fundrise, but I don't think for the average investor, particularly those that are 
you know, call them millennials, um, maybe even some of Gen Y, and most certainly the vast majority of Gen Z, as they start to accelerate in their careers and make more and more money, there's this huge gap in literacy in terms of understanding what what exactly they're doing. And then the flip side of the coin is there's also these extremely educated individuals who are like, you know what, I just want to trust somebody else with my money that it comes from an institutional background and I can throw a bunch of cash at them and not have to worry about it down the road. Um, and they just want to passively invest and have it be done at a very low fee relative to what the market actually sits at, which is probably the other small secret that we kind of keep in our back pocket. Well, I, I totally agree about the education gap, but to me, I, I might take it a step further and say it's not even a gap between generations because most baby boomers, I mean, heck, even most financial advisors, there's not enough time to really be an expert, uh, you know, in each of these asset classes. I mean, to me, that's a that's the beauty of alternative investments, but it's also kind of a problem. I can say this from firsthand experience, you know, hosting this show, the alternative investment podcast. I'm like, you know, this world is almost like everything. It's like you, it's, it's the entire earth, everything you can invest in, which is a heck of a lot of very different things, minus publicly traded stocks, minus publicly traded bonds, minus cash. It's everything else. And so it's like you, if I'm an advisor, like you expect me to be an expert in uh private credit and angel and venture and now baseball cards or limited edition sneakers. It's, you know, it's, 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 so I, 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 I totally respect. And I think even from that business perspective, I understand the decision to put education at the front and sort of, you know, almost have that be your, your, your marketing, I guess. Do you all look at education almost as a form of marketing? Absolutely. Um, I can speak from having observed just almost, I don't know how many at this point, actually pieces of our writing that goes out. It's the co-founders come together. They like write it. It gets touched by like six other people, but it's still their brains. It's still them talking. It's still their voice. And I think it's just so incredible how well-versed they are on the subject matter, that they're able to simplify it and turn it into something that both digestible and interesting to read. Um, and it's honestly what drew me into the platform when I started interviewing to join, because that level of mastery of subject is just incredibly rare across the industry, unless you have just the, the massive depth of knowledge that the people at Fundrise have. And then communicating it is like a whole separate thing because a lot of times, you know, the people who know they're, they might be geniuses at something, but breaking it down, communicating it clearly so that, you know, everybody can understand it. That's actually really hard. And so I guess, I guess that brings me to, I wanted to talk about some of these other asset classes on the Fundrise platform. One thing that I respect is, you know, given how long you've been around, you know, it, and it sounds like your co-founders are still very heavily involved in the day-to-day -day stuff. You're not trying to cover every asset class, you know, or, you know, it, you don't have 20 different asset classes on Fundrise. You have three or four or five. And to me, that kind of speaks to, we want to have this depth of experience if we're going to, you know, have a product in a particular asset class, right? 
Absolutely. I mean, I will say the reason that I was hired was to help figure out what some of those new asset classes and fintech adjacent products will be down the road. But that being said, we know what we're good at um, and we vertically integrated slash built down value chain on the ones that we have felt very passionate about. Mm -hmm. So those, those have already been constructed and we're certainly contemplating what the next version of that should be. So we started with real estate and then we moved on to venture capital. Let's start, let's, let's go to venture capital next. So does, does Fundrise have a fund that invests in seed rounds as a series A? Um, do you have your own Fundrise branded VC fund? Yes. So we call it the Innovation Fund. It's a 40X fund. It's a fund that is designed for founders. So it's, if you were a company that started, or you were a person that started your own company, this is exactly what we envision you would want invested in your company. Um, I mean, our, I guess it's twofold. The first piece coming from our extremely engaged investor base, uh, which we can leverage through the investment. So our investment strategy provides updates to our investor base, which you mentioned the numbers on earlier. And that investor base is both highly engaged and at least a quarter of them are in the tech and startup world. So there's a little bit of, I mean, network effect is probably dramatic, but it's a very interesting way of being able to get more brand awareness and hopefully some lead demand um, on your product um, rather than having to just send it to a hundred high net worth investors or an endowment where there's not as many eyeballs that get to see what your investment is. Uh, and we work with the companies to position them. And then in terms of comparing ourselves to a traditional fund, um, we're also growing exponentially. So that investor base is perpetually growing every single day and we're exposing every single one of them to the investments in the venture fund in hopes of helping them continue to be able to grow as a company. Um, trying to think what the other things that are significant would be. I guess the other big one is that we're passive by design. So we intentionally created uh, an investment vehicle and structural um, infra infrastructure of the actual fund that makes it such that we don't have a board seat. We're happy to be board observers. We're happy to provide advice. We're certainly investing in things that we're passionate about but we don't actually intend on taking any control over any of the companies that we invest in. So those are probably the biggest value propositions and differentiators within our fund. So then uh, you guys get like a free ride off the other GPs who are, I'm kidding. Uh, <laughs> but no, I mean, I, I kind of, I kind of get it. It makes sense with, with 387,000 investors on your platform, just that sheer number of uh, social connections or relationships. I would think that that would bring, you know, you said, uh, I think you said branding or mindshare, whatever word you use, but also potentially a deal flow or just, you know, just that trust of, of being a brand name. You're not Sequoia, but really there's only one Sequoia, right? So after those first few big names in venture capital gets very fragmented very quickly, right? Absolutely. And I mean, you say Sequoia, our first investment was in this incredible company called Vanta. Um, and they're a data compliance entity. And if you look at Sequoia's website, Vanta is actually spotlighted as one of their favorite companies. And it's just, it just speaks to the fact that we're able to bring investors in for as little as $10 
to our platform to offer that innovation fund. And we're investing alongside these behemoth venture investors such as Sequoia. So it's just, it's one of those things where the value proposition is enormous if you can understand exactly how that works. Got it. Um, well, sticking with VC or sort of, I, I wanted to ask about secondaries. Um, so tell us about this asset class and and how Fundrise is offering access to secondaries. This is obviously something different than the innovation fund. Yes. So there's this cross pollination between our innovation fund and then we have this other product called Equitize. And Equitize is offering the ability for the C-suite of any startup um, to essentially come and have control over liquidity on their secondary shares. So in contrast to companies that will have, you know, rofer or no rofer in terms of optionality, we actually give full control to the C-suite in terms of, okay, let's negotiate what the share price is. And then you can determine based on your employee's tenure and based on how much you want to offer in terms of liquidity, what that looks like structurally on your cap table. The benefit to the company is that they only have one entity sitting on their cap table. So they're only facing fundrise, um, which is, you know, obviously significantly easier than the complex cap tables that end up coming out through some of the other companies that provide liquidity. So um, we've flowed, I believe, a million dollars so far through Equitize, but it's rapidly growing. My understanding is that there's several transactions that are occurring in the next couple of weeks, but it's uh, our newest product and probably the one that I'm most excited about for founders. There's so much growth in that space. And it, I mean, it's, I would say it's overdue, you know, really to, to give founders and employees this kind of access to the secondary market is, is your product, is it only supporting companies in your venture capital fund, or is it open to other VC funded startups as well? So we're open to, um, really any company that wants to come to our platform, we do have some parameters. So we're for both and essentially the thesis ties out to both of them. So it's data infrastructure, FinTech, PropTech, B2B enterprise that kind of sits within our thesis in terms of the overarching themes. Um, we're looking at growth stage and we're hoping for you know, more than 50 million raised so far. Um, and average age is probably greater than five years. But but generally speaking, we're open to talking to any company, even if they're in the earlier stages, particularly because we want to track them. We want to give them advice if they fit within our thesis and get them to where we can make the investment. Got it. So I've had, you know, several GPs on the show before in venture funds. Uh, I haven't had one on the show too lately. I'm guessing valuations are still pretty, I'm going to say attractive, you know, as an LP, as a as an investor, are valuations in the innovation fund and the secondaries, are they still very, very attractive for investors, favorable for investors? Yes. And that is definitely something that we're thinking about before we make the investment. Um, one, of, one of the things we have noted is, you know, current valuations are at about 50% of what the last valuation probably was. 
um, which is okay. And it, you know, it's better for our investors and it's probably closer to reality than, mm-hmm. than not at this point. Um, but yes, I would say, I would say the discount is still ongoing. So sorry. So 50% of what it was, or maybe what it would have been, I mean, are there, are there companies raising money in down rounds? Is that the norm? Or you just mean that the, the typical valuation multiplier now is much less than it would have been like two years ago? Yeah, I mean, um, I am speaking from conversations that I've had in the last couple of weeks between LA Tech Week um, and some venture meetings that I've been attending. The general consensus is that they're at about 50% of what they probably would have been. Um, and, and there are some down rounds that are happening there for sure. Those are spoken about less, I think, but they're common to... Um, I believe they were called like pull through rounds last time we had a huge venture, venture recession. So similarly priced. Yeah. I mean, it's <laughs> to, to be honest, the, uh, the, the valuations of two and three years ago were probably just too high. So I don't, I don't know, you know, it's, it's kind of like when the stock market, when stocks go down, uh, I think it's Warren Buffett is like, you should love that. It's like stocks are on sale. You go to the supermarket if groceries are on sale, it's a good thing, right? Um, but at the same time, with with venture, I do I do think it was probably overpriced. And now I, I think Syra, I might agree with you. Maybe now it's just more realistically priced. But still, I mean, it has to be said, real estate hasn't had a fifty percent valuation reset, right? Like I feel like in real, depending on the sector, geography, you're lucky to have a a ten percent or fifteen percent or 20% discount to two years ago. So 50% just seems very attractive, you know, and just, just, that's a big, bold number for invest. Do you like venture, you know, kind of switching to, you know, investor to investor. Do you like, do you like venture capital right now in 2023 at this point in time? I do. I I mean, the IPO window is still closed. Mm-hmm. Um, companies are staying private for longer. You're seeing it across. I mean, I think coming from a fintech background, I mean, you're seeing it with Stripe, you're seeing it with Plaid. There are just so many companies that are incredible that are staying private for longer. So it is, and historically over the course of the last decade, it's just outperformed time and time again against every other asset class. So I'm I'm still very bullish on this space. And I know it's been a tough year for companies that are fundraising, maybe two years now, I guess. But it it's still a great, still a great place to be investing. And I'm very bullish on the long-term prospect. Yeah, as long as you can diversify. That's my thing with Angel, with venture, returns are high. As long exactly. as you're able to diversify. But uh I, I know we don't have a ton of time left. But I wanted to ask about one more asset class. I think this one is going to be really in your wheelhouse, given your professional background. So Fundrise is now has a private credit product. Is that right? Yes, we launched that. I can't recall if it was in December or if it started earlier this year, but we launched a private credit fund and it is um, an accredited only. It's one of our only accredited only products. But um, given the market dislocation, the inverted yield curve, and I mean, I think I would assume that you guys, based on some of the podcasts I've listened to from from the show, you guys have definitely touched on interest rates and um, private credit already. So strategically, it just made perfect sense 
um, given our position. So we launched that, I believe, earlier this year, and it's it's been wildly successful so far. But we did we are specializing in that um, for at least I believe we'll have more windows open later this year. But um, it's a it's currently waitlisted, but we are periodically opening the window to allow additional investors in on I believe a monthly basis. Oh, it's waitlisted. Holy, <laughs> I I know we have some sponsors and platforms who who listen to the show. I think a, a lot a lot of folks might be jealous to hear. Well, we're raising capital, but it's closed right now. We have a wait. <laughs> you know, but it, I will say with with private credit, it's it was one of those asset classes you always heard about. It's kind of quiet. Really, in the past, I'd say nine months, I've heard private credit more than like in the previous, you know, multiple years beforehand, it's just a lot more, even like family offices, even more sophisticated investors, ultra high net worth who might've, you know, they knew what private credit was, but they never really invested in it. And now they're allocating to it, right? Interest rates are higher. And then also the spread then between private, private credit and, and bonds is also higher. So you add those two things up. I think a lot of investors are saying, well, shoot, if I can get nine, 10% and not have to take on the risk of like equity and real estate, I'm, I'm just going to invest in this private credit fund. Um, when, when you all decided to launch in that space, was it mostly just investment thesis? Was it demand from your existing, were, were people like asking about it? Like, when are you going to launch a, was it a combination of those things? Yeah, I mean, this speaks to like the just the brainiacs that are at our in our C suite, but they really wanted to have higher risk adjusted returns um, in a recession resilient sector. So we focus on MES and senior preferred in the multifamily sector. And when we started having the conversations to just kind of litmus test to see what the interest level was, it was explosive. So it's one of those things where um, we would love to take on more funding. It's just very hard to do um, when you want to do it well and do right by your investors. So we're gradually ramping that up over the next few months. Yeah, if I'm reading between the lines, you don't want to do deals just because you could raise capital and do deals. You don't want to do it just because you could. You want to make sure that it fits your underwriting criteria. Um, as an investor, as an LP, I, re I respect that very much. Well, Syrah, I know you used to do interest rate derivative sales. We we're talking about this a little bit before we started recording. You know, we're talking about private credit. I'm going to ask you to do a very dangerous thing. I want you to reach or, or turn around, pick up your crystal ball and tell us as investors, where is this going? You know, obviously we have this, this kind of hawkish pause or whatever, whatever they're calling it. Are our interest rates eventually going to come back down or can I expect this higher interest rate environment for a, a good long while? Um. Humorously, that is why I have crystal ball in my office. Um, I, the running joke on my trade desk used to be that if we could predict interest rates, we'd make a lot more money. Um, but I, I don't know. I think is my short term answer. My short term answer is, I think what we saw for the last, you know, almost two decades, two two decades plus maybe at this point, 
um, it was just a different, or I guess last decade, technically 15 years, but I, it was just a different world. I entered in, um, right as the market was crashing into the interest rates world. And I feel like, I feel like it was a very different time. It was a very different market. Mm -hmm. Um, I think every market is a new market. So, you know, I could be completely wrong, but I don't, I see us coming back a little bit because you can only, uh, you kind of see things halting. We, I think we all sense that there's a recession coming. So, you know, there's only so many things that the government can do to fix things, lowering interest rates being one of them. I just don't know that it's ever going to go as low as it was before. That being said, um, I have been wrong every single time I've ever predicted interest rates, even though I worked in it for 11 years. So, um, well, thank you. No, Sarah, I have to say thank you. Uh, you qualified it very, very well, but you're least, I mean, for the record, I think I kind of agree. You know, I, I just turned 40 and I've told people this, you know, until a year ago, the, the idea that you would be buying any kind of a taxable bond fund and that you could actually make returns triple net, you know, net of inflation, net of taxes, net of fees, like didn't even occur to me. I'm like, bonds are this place in your portfolio <laughs> where you're you're trying to barely maybe stay even with inflation, you know, triple net, you know, now with private credit, um, you know, you have, you have inflation, the CPI, the official CPI numbers at least falling, but with these private credit funds, it's like, wow, you could actually makes make some real return here risk adjusted return and part of the reason why i ask is like even as an investor or or if, if you're an advisor it's like well yeah but do you even want to bother you know because like if this fund is just going to be yielding six percent a year from now like do i even want to bother with all the paperwork and getting the k1 or what but i i think i'm with you that you know it, it may give back you know as inflation recedes and it is receding but it's it's not inflation's not going to get back to 2% or if it if it is it might touch it and then come back up because there have been structural changes right in the last couple of years and like like I mentioned you know how old I am you can go through multiple decades and and have interest rates be in this range and you kind of get used to thinking it's always going to be this way and that's true until it isn't true right Exactly. That's yeah. I I'm I struggle to see a world where we go back to 2009 and 2010. So, well, I like it because I mean, to to me, that means that private credit is is maybe more here to stay because you always have that you know that the the additional buffer, that additional yield that private credit will be paying versus you know high yield bonds, but it sure helps when that that base interest rate is already high. And then that spread, you add that spread onto it. It just makes that asset class so much more attractive. And I, I think a lot of, honestly, a lot of family offices, ultra high net worth investors, they knew what it was, but they really weren't invested in it. I, 2023 has really been the year for private credit, in my opinion. So not surprised, Fundrise, you guys always seem like you're you know, ahead of the curve. Not surprised that you have a product there. I know we're about out of time. Is there anything you guys have coming down the pipe that, you know, and anything later this year that investors maybe should keep an eye on? Anything you're working on that you're excited about? Um, I do have one thing I'm excited about that I, I I can't say a ton about, but we are bringing 
the wide world of private investment to allocators platforms, to um, different fintech companies, to uh, brokerages down the road. So officially creating kind of those pipes. Um, and I'm fortunate that I'm one of the people um, leading that project. So I'm very, very excited about that, although I can't talk a ton about it just yet. But that is that is going to be launched here in the near future. So be on the lookout for that as well. Great. Well, Syrah, when that is is launching or about to launch, we'll have to have you back on the show to give us a sneak preview of, of that platform. In the meantime, where can our audience of high net worth investors and family offices go to learn more about Fundrise? Um, you can go to um, www.fundrise.com. Um, that is our home website. And if you would like to get some referral through me, it's www.fundrise.com forward slash Syra, S-A-I-R-A. But um, oh. yeah, and feel free to come find me on socials. I'm always happy to chat. So I'm going to make a note right now, Syra, to put in that referral code on our show notes, which are always available at Wealth Channel. Syrah, thanks again for joining the show today. Thank you so much, Andy. It was great chatting with you. That's it for today's show. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider leaving us a rating and review to help spread the word to other investors. And we'll be back soon with another episode.